first of our five-part series on theology of the body. And I think he's almost passing it out. I would love to start with a prayer. So if you will join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we just thank you for the gift of this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your servant, John Paul II, and for the gift of his teaching through these audiences, Theology of the Body. Lord, I ask that you would just anoint our hearts and our minds to receive your word, your words of truth and love and freedom. Lord, that they would serve as an encouragement for us. Lord, and that we would hear your voice of love behind everything this evening. We just entrust this time to Our Lady and to her prayers. And we share all of this and entrust it to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi. So um, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Sarah Denny. I am one of the campus ministers here at Christ the King. Um, I am kind of obsessed with theology of the body, so that's why they're letting me teach on it. Um, in short, Theology of the Body was written by this man. He's a stud. His name is John Paul II. He is also currently a saint recognized by the church. Um, but he, what he would do is, so in Rome, the popes on Wednesday, so Pope Francis does this currently, so yesterday he would have done this, they deliver a weekly audience. And so what John Paul II did is, starting in 1979, he started delivering weekly audiences on the gift of human sexuality, human love, uh, what does it mean to be a human person, things like that. It ended up going for a series of five years, right? So we don't have five years to go through everything. We do have five classes, and this is the first of that. But just to let you know kind of where it came from. And this man, um, he's Polish. He grew up and survived World War II. He lost his mother at a very young age, and his brother and his father by the age of 21. And so he is a man who is well acquainted with suffering. And he was a man who is well acquainted with the questions and the struggles of just human beings. And one of his first jobs when he was a priest, he was also a campus minister at a university in Poland. And so he would often take college students, so people your age, on camping trips, on kayaking trips. Um, and when World War II ended, then it was the communist regime, right? So they had to do all these things in hiding. So you'll see really cool pictures of John Paul II, like having the back of a canoe. They'd flip a canoe or a kayak over. He'd use that as the altar, and he would do mass on that. Um, so it was a man of courage um, and a man with a heart of gold. But he also, when he would bring them into the woods, he had real conversations with them, right? He spent hours and hours and hours in the confessional. He was a man who was well acquainted with the beauty of human love because he was open to the questions of these people as they approached him, right? Um, so the reason why we can talk about any of this is, you know, some would say, oh, well, he's this priest. Like, what does he have to say about human love or sexuality or relationships? And I would argue that he actually has more to say than most because he's had countless conversations where he's listened to men and to women expressing their struggles, expressing their fears, expressing their hopes and their dreams and their joys, right? So um, just to begin, also, who the heck am I um, besides a campus minister? The reason why Theology of the Body is such a gift for me and the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because it's been a huge part of my own life. So when I was 17 years old, um, so 2007, I remember vividly, it was Valentine's Day, because Jesus is just awesome like that. 
And me and some other girls that I worked with on this campus ministry team and guys at our brother's school, we were planning a retreat. And as we were planning this retreat, the teacher who was instructing us and kind of watching us do different stuff, he started to talk about this thing called theology of the body. And I'd never heard of it before in my life. And so he went up to the chalkboard, and, like, all the girls were sitting on the floor. I'll never forget this. And all the guys were sitting behind us. Most of them we were dating at the time. And so he gave us this, like, spiel on the gift and the beauty of human love. And he also was like, if the guys you're dating aren't, you know, measuring up to this standard, then, like, you should break up with them. And we were like, what? (laughs) But in simple form, what did he do? I don't have a chalkboard, sorry. But he drew on the board. And so follow my hands with this for a second. But he was like, God the Father is here. God the Father offers and initiates the gifts of love, right, in fullness to the Son here. The Son receives that fullness and intimacy from the Father and offers himself back, right? And he says their love is so real that that is the Holy Spirit. Okay, we kind of have an understanding of that, so that wasn't exactly the bomb that I felt like dropped that day. I was like, okay, this is cool. Oh, the Holy Spirit. I'd like to understand him a little better. Great. Then he drew next to that. He was like, so too, men and women through the gift and the sacrament of marriage are the most tangible, real expression that is supposed to reflect to all of creation the beauty and the goodness of God's love as Trinity, as a communion of persons. And so then he drew and he put, as man in marriage, offers himself in total gift and love to woman, Woman receives that gift and offers it back, a total gift to man. Their love is so real, if they're sharing themselves fully, which includes the gift of their bodies, right, that nine months later, they give it a name, right? They have a baby, if that didn't make sense to you. (laughs) So what is he trying to show us in that? And he was like, this is what John Paul II is teaching. What he's trying to show us is that the family, the family, which is a communion of persons, is that which God has gifted to all of creation as the most clear sign of what the love of God looks like. It's not a perfect reflection, right? I mean, clearly, I think you can all tell that. It's not perfect, but it is the most clear sign that we have, which too is also why the Lord has raised up marriage to the gift and beauty of a sacrament. Um, So anyway, that's how I started learning about it. And from that day, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to read more. And so I started reading more on my own, like different books that people would give me related to theology of the body. Um, And then I took a really crazy women's studies class my freshman year of college. I was on my own journey of like, what the heck does it mean to be a woman? And because of theology of the body and the writings of John Paul II and what he was explaining that I'm about to share with you, um, it it changed everything for me. I mean, that is literally, like theology of the body has been such a gift in my own life. Like, A, I wouldn't be here talking about this because I wouldn't know what it was. I wouldn't be here. This would not be my job. This would not be part of my mission. This would not be what would give me joy. Um, And I don't think I would be completely fulfilled as I am currently because I know that I'm in the Lord's will. And I believe that part of the Lord's will had me receiving the gift of theology by the age of 17. So what I gave you this evening, um, if you have the handouts, if not, we can put them on the website too or the app. Shelly is really good at that. Um, But I have these handouts for you. I'm not going to read all of this to you because that's boring. But what I am going to do is invite you to take this to prayer, right? So these audiences, I took different quotes from them, inviting you to pray with them. But the gift of what I want to focus on tonight is, you know, all of us, every single one of us in this room, we were made for love from love. 
Our destiny, our vocation is love. I know most of you in the room are freaking out. You're like, what am I supposed to do with my life? If you forget anything else I say, I have that answer for you. Your vocation is to love. Every single one of you in here is called to love because that is how God created you in the end for which he desires you to be, ultimately with himself. But on this side of heaven, right, he doesn't just want you to survive. The tools that theology of the body can give us is that he doesn't just want you to survive. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to be given these gifts so that you can freely choose with your will love, especially when it's messy and when it's hard. At the end of the talk, I'm going to give you kind of more practicals um, because I do think that this is sort of the perfect time to be talking about theology of the body considering everything that's happening in the church um, and just things in my own life. It's really come up the last few weeks. Um, but to get started, I want you to look at the first quote, which is the scripture from Matthew. John Paul II is basing his entire teaching of theology of the body on this gospel passage from Matthew. And if you don't have papers, it's okay. You can listen. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered them, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator created them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So it is that they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let man not separate. They objected. Why then did Moses order to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answered, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. John Paul II for the first year of these audiences, he keeps bringing it back and back and back to the beginning. I say those words, and if you've never heard this before, that's okay. You're like, well, what does that mean? If you open up scripture, Genesis 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning. Those are the first words of the word of God, meaning they are very, very important. That God desired to use those words to reveal himself to us. All of these quotes that are really awesome and really beautiful that I want you to pray with, um, what they are talking about is the reality that before the fall, so go with me for a second, I want you to lay down all of your ideas about human love and sexuality and how hard it is and how this guy's a jerk and how she's really revengeful, blah, blah, blah. Stop it. Leave it right here. Okay, come with me to before the fall, before original sin. What was it like then for us to exist as human beings? And the reason why this is really important is because we need to know what kind of father that we have. If you think that this is what he meant for us, then you are justified in thinking that he's a tease and he's playing a game with you. But he is not. God the Father put man and woman in the garden for a great and noble purpose. It says in Genesis 1, in this particular account, it moves to the order of creation and it says that God created the land and the sea, right? He starts with the light and the darkness. He moves through this order, a succession, right? He says after everything, and God looked and saw that it was good. And God looked and saw that it was good. And God looked and saw that it was good. Where is the difference between those first few days and when God creates man and woman? There's a very big difference. Um, it says, John Paul II says, it's almost like when you read... Genesis, that the Trinity withdraws almost into itself, pauses, and then creates man. Meaning, he creates man with intention. 
And God looked and saw after that creation that it was very good, right? That superlative is key. Nothing in scripture is just, oh, that was cute. Let's put another word in there. No, like it was very good. It marks this fulfillment, this completion of this great work of creation. So God intended for man and woman to exist in creation so that creation would have a tangible reality when it looked upon that creature, it would be reminded of what God looks like, right? So it talks about in Genesis 1, Adam, clearly is the name, Adam. John Paul II points out, in the beginning, when it's talking about Adam, it's talking about, think of it less as like male, female, and more so like just all of humanity. The reality that the human person was walking around the garden, and the human person was looking for someone like himself, okay? We each have a taste of that, right? You know what it feels like to feel lonely. But the reality is, this is what John Paul II calls original solitude. This space, this sort of like state of being, of original solitude, was not just for kicks. It was not just because God wanted us to feel some ache. It was a very intentional reality that the Lord created man so that man could come to what John Paul II calls a sort of self-consciousness. Man had to become aware of his surroundings. So what did God do? God allowed all of the animals to come to man. And man had the duty to name the animals. If you name something, you have some sort of dominion over it. Right? The hope is that the dominion is one in which you serve and not dominate. Right? And so the point is that God was also showing Adam in this experience. These creatures are good because he said that it was good. Right? But these creatures, none of them are like himself. I mean, when I taught eighth graders, it's cheesy, but I would always say, like, what do you think Adam did? Like, he went up to the giraffe and asked her on a date? Like, haha, that's a joke. Like, that doesn't happen. Why? Because animals are not the same as human beings. Like, I love dogs. I think they're super cute. I'm not as big a fan of cats. Whatever. Animals are animals. They're great. But there's a difference between the animals than human beings. Not just because we look different. That's the whole point. It's not just that we look different. It's that we have a capacity to reason. Our rational soul. We can know and choose the good. And if the good is God himself and God's identity is love, then the greatest way in which I actualize, I live out, I fulfill my capacity as a human being is when I choose to love. So... Adam realizes there is no one like me. And in the second creation account, Genesis 2, um, John Paul II talks about the word he uses to a poor. There's probably a cooler way to say that. I don't know what it is. But it's like this very, very, very deep sleep. But it's not like, oh, I had a really cool dream, and then I woke up, and then everything was different. He says it that it's such a deep sleep. It's like God almost like took man out of existence and held him and like put him back. And when he awakened, boom, there was a distinguishing factor between male and female. And it, it changes the Hebrew words, change. Man is now called Ish, and woman is Isha, because she is the one from whom she came from man. Ish and Isha. And what does Adam say when he wakes up and he looks at Eve? I mean, this is so funny. I use this with high school girls, but I'm like, he wasn't saying, dang girl, you look hot in those whatever. That's weird. But he wasn't saying that, right? What did he say? He was saying, this at last she at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He recognizes not just that her body is similar to his, and yet obviously still different. 
he recognizes that she is a being like himself. When I say being, I mean that they both have the gift of existence in a way that is unique to the human person. Everything that John Paul II is trying to show us through this is he's like, hey, I know that life is hard. I know the human relationships are messy, but let's talk about the original plan. So I did put a picture up. I know. I didn't paint that. Um, clearly. Sistine Chapel, right? This is the moment, they say, before he breathes his life into Adam. And I want you to notice something that's very important is behind his left arm, the artist intended for there to be Eve. Okay? He says that Eve always existed in the mind of the creator. And so what's important for us is to realize that from the beginning, we have a father and his plan for us was a plan of love. Where is this line that we cross over that then everything changed? What do we call that line? Original sin, the fall, fill in whatever you want. There's some things I've been thinking about, praying about that I haven't shared because they never popped in my head before. I was driving in the car yesterday. But like the reality is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God put them in the garden. If you read scripture, he was very clear. He said, all of this is yours, but do not eat of this lest you die. And John Paul II says, do they even understand what it means to die? Do they know what death is? Because they've never experienced it before. And so he explains it in such a sense that he's like, you know, they know the goodness and the beauty and the happiness, the absolute bliss that they have in existing with God and in being one with him, that they realize that whatever that word is, death, it's the antithesis, the opposite. It's going to be a break from this perfection, from this beauty, right? So how the heck then did we go from perfection to the fall? How did that happen? Is it echoing for you? It's like really weird for me. Sorry. It may not matter. I'm just going to keep talking. So all of this, how is it possible? In the Catechism of the Church, it says that man and woman let their trust in their creator die in their hearts. So to each one of us every single day, I think this is really important to recognize. We have the choice, y'all, are we going to trust that our Father is good and that he wants what's best for us? Or are we going to believe that we have to be the ones to provide for ourselves? Right? They would not have chosen the knowledge of good and evil, this tree, to eat this fruit if it was ugly and gross and whatever. They chose it because it looked so good. So too, you and I are presented oftentimes with gifts. And sometimes the reality is that we know deep in the depths of our hearts, this looks good. But this isn't what's best. But if there's anything that the Lord will never, ever go against, it's the gift of our freedom. He will never force you, not even to love with himself. That's huge, y'all. So what does this mean? We're bouncing back and forth. JP2 does this. Now we're going to go back to before the fall, just for a second. What does that look like? That looks like Adam exists. I'm just going to be Eve for a second. Adam exists. When Adam awakens and Adam sees Eve, he sees because of the fullness of his consciousness, right? Because of the state, they call it a state of perfect innocence. Original innocence, original righteousness, original justice. It all means the same thing. We existed in a perfect state of grace. And when Adam looks upon Eve, what he sees is 
someone like himself, and he knows fully this woman, this gift is from the Father. She has been entrusted to me as a gift. And so I am called to love the gift. And when it talks about she will be a helper for him, something that John Paul II says so beautifully, and by the way, that's vice versa. Adam is a gift for Eve. She's entrusted with Adam, etc. The gift, when it says I will make a helper fit for him, Eve's existence, man for woman, woman for man, all of you in this room, the way that God created it, our existence for each other is such that we help the other to discover themselves. Like, I know that you know that, I know that I know that, but can we just repeat that for another time, okay? Like, we exist to help each other to discover from the core who we are. Man for woman and woman for man. For the rest of time, that's what it is. That's how God intended it, okay? It's a little bit more difficult to see, but the point is that before the fall, it was not that they were just like children and they didn't understand. It was not that they were primitive people and so they just, their brains weren't developed. No. What they are saying is in a very simple way, very profound in few words, because those authors are a lot better than I can write anything, just few words. What they are saying is, is they were so fully aware of who they were, their identity with the Father, they were fully conscious, it's called the theology of the body because of this, they were fully conscious that their bodies had a meaning, had a purpose, and that together is how that purpose was to work. It is not good for the man to be alone. Adam could see that she was first someone like himself, a gift in that capacity. Then he could see she's also kind of different. And we seem to fit, literally, together. John Paul II calls that the spousal meaning of the body. If any of my notes say nuptial, it's the same thing. What is the spousal meaning of the body? The spousal meaning of the body is exactly this. We were created to be gifts for each other. Whatever your vocation is, you were created to be gifts to those around you. But he's saying that especially within sacramental marriage, right, within marriage, you were created the wife for the husband. They preached on it, Ephesians 5. How perfect that worked out this past Sunday, right? In mutual subjection. There's not like ones over the other. He also makes it very clear. She was taken from the rib Right? She was taken from him, and he was put to sleep. To make it very clear, Adam did not make Eve. It wasn't because Adam was awesome. It was because God the Father was generous. Okay? But we need both. It's the communion of persons. Um, so, anyway, what he's saying in this is that even though we've crossed this line, y'all, even though we've come from a place of perfect bliss to now it's really messy, he says... We might be in a different state, but that original order, which is God's grace, we have not lost that power. We still have access to it. So simply put, if you think about grace, because this is how I used to teach it, if you think about grace as like the spinach that Popeye used to eat, I don't know, there's probably better analogies, but just roll with it. He would eat the spinach, he'd get strong. Right? But he needed to keep going back to it. So too, I don't have an infinite amount of grace in me. I need to keep going back. Before the fall, we existed in a perfect state of grace. Since the fall, where do I get grace? You can answer. Where do you get grace? The sacraments and prayer. 
right? It's not because God wants you to have to go to Mass every week because he just wants to take an hour of your time. It's because he wants to give to you his very life force so that you have the strength and the capacity. You have a capacity, but you have the strength to respond to your call and your vocation as a human being, which is to image him to the world through love, which is hard, which is why you need his grace. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, If you look at page two, So my favorite audiences were like 11 through 20. Anyway, this one's about the meaning of original nakedness. And it's talking about that moment when they had to choose. It says, at the same time, this test for man and woman, it constituted the first test of obedience. That is listening to the word and all of its truth and accepting love according to the fullness of the demands of the creative will. And if you keep going down, um, it talks about, so the third quote underneath that heading. In the experience of shame, the human being experiences fear with regard to his second self. For example, woman before man or man before woman. This is substantially fear for one's own self. And under that, it talks about the happy discovery of one's humanity with the help of the other human being. So God's original plan for us was that we would enjoy, through the spousal meaning of the body, The happy discovery of God's original plan for us. Just so you know, daughters of the Father, he wanted it to be such that you would be in a relationship with a son of the Father who would look at you in all purity of the interior gaze and love you as you were. Not objectifying you, not trying to take something from you for his own pleasure, but instead wanting to offer himself as a gift. And vice versa, sons of the Father, the same thing. He wanted a woman to be able to look at you, not expecting you to be her savior in everything, right? But to be an equal helpmate, to reveal to her her own identity and humanity because of the way that you loved her and because of the way that you received her love, right? The power of this, y'all, is that our human bodies are the tangible way in which God expresses himself to the world. We can't be ourselves apart from our bodies. For example... I go to the doctor, um, I tore my ACL a year ago, I go to the doctor, I'm not going to be like, hey, that knee over there, I really need you to take an x-ray of it, I'll just chill over here while you x-ray that knee. It's my knee, right? It's part of me. That's huge. So I can't separate myself from my body. Another thing to understand, when we talk about God's life-giving spirit, we're talking about the soul, right? The soul is where God dwells within us, but he doesn't dwell within us and our soul apart from our bodies, Just very simply put, as a human being, you have a body and a soul. Can I touch your soul? No. Hint, no. Can I weigh your soul? No. Can I touch your body? Yeah. Can I weigh your body? Yeah. Tangible, intangible. Is any one of these, is one more real than the other? No. They're both real. We exist as an integrated whole. And so this is the point, is before the fall, we were so integrated, my vision was so integrated, that we could see each other in the fullness of that gaze. He calls man and woman's gaze, he says, the peace of the interior gaze, right? What do we call that unnatural reality when the body and the soul separate? Death, okay? On a philosophical level, we're talking about death. Um, So everything here is talking about, okay, The reality is, did we die when we ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? In a spiritual sense, we did. What do we experience? We experience a division between man and God, 
we experience a division between man within himself. We experience a division between man and woman. And we experience a division between man and the rest of the world, right? Um, all of that connects back to why we have the division and the frustration and the mess that we have today, okay? However, is this something John Paul II is saying just so that you can be like, well, that was cool. I wish we could have that. Can we go back and cross that line and live there? No. But can we realize an echo of that? Yes. That's what he's trying to say. He's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, like that first quote I read, he's saying, in the beginning it was not so because he's inviting the Pharisees to come with him to that boundary line and to not be afraid to look over it, to not be afraid to look past that horizon and to see what the Father originally intended in creation. Now on this side, if in that, within that reality, you're probably like, okay, well, this is cool. Like I'm really glad that you're telling us all of these ways that Adam and Eve used to look at each other, but like, what about now? What do I do? The ways that you access that, y'all, is through the grace that we're talking about. The gift of our baptism is that God, again, chooses to dwell within us. We get to participate. Y'all, this is crazy. As human beings, the Trinity does choose to dwell within us. That is the gift of our baptism. We literally participate in the Godhead, in, in the life of the Trinity. We are not God, but we are called to live like him, and we are brought up forth to him in and through our choices to love. So if you look on page three, right above number five, I just have it says intimacy equals the hidden meaning of vision. What we are experiencing in this culture is a crisis. I mean, a billion of them. One of the crises is that we have lost vision. We don't truly see. And what we do see, we don't see it in its fullness and what it's meant to be. If you desire to see more clearly, I'm telling you to pray specifically for the grace of purity. The grace of purity is what allows us to see like God sees. That is why it's one of the Beatitudes where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And if you want a particular scripture to pray with, wisdom, I think it's chapter 7. It has all these adjectives. Like, I would write that down, actually, and pray with it if you have a pen. Wisdom chapter 7. It has all these adjectives to describe the clearness, the truth, the power, the fulfillment of the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of purity, which means that you can see like God sees. If you go down a little bit on page 3, um, the quote from another document, it says that man cannot find himself except through a sincere gift of self. Right? And underneath that, this is what I kind of want to focus on before I make it a little more tangible for you. It says, here we mean freedom above all as self-mastery or self-dominion. Under this aspect, self-mastery is indispensable in order for man to be able to give himself, in order for him to become a gift, in order for him to be able to find himself fully through a sincere gift of self. Y'all, if you want to prepare for your future vocation, you have to start now. What is the way in which you can give the most full gift of yourself? It is by giving a gift that comes from a heart that is free. My question to every single one of you, including myself, are you free? 
I would venture to believe that each of us has something. What are we holding on to? And again, what we were talking about before, if God had this really incredible plan, right, this beautiful plan, a plan for life, a plan for fullness, a plan for beatific love and perfection and all of this, and we went a little bit off the path, how do you think the enemy, if he was smart at all, would choose to push us off the path? He uses the power of fear. So when I say I'm making it more practical, this is really where I'm going with this. What in your life, what fears are coming up in your heart that are paralyzing you from moving? I mean like making decisions in your life and following the Lord's will. Remember, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was charming. It was alluring to the eyes and to the senses, right? It looked good. The voice of the Father was saying, this is not what's best. Do not do this. And we had a choice. Every single day, each of us has a choice. Am I going to serve the idol of fear? Will I let fear be the master of my life? Or am I going to serve the God of truth? The Father who says that he will be faithful to his promises. It was in the reading today. God is faithful. What are the promises that you have in your heart? What are the desires that you have in your heart? And what are the ways in which you were being beaten up, right, that you want to doubt him? Because it says, again, the only reason why we fell is because we, as man and woman, let our trust in our creator die in our hearts. What are the things that you were struggling to trust him with? He wants you to go there with him. There's nothing that you can bring to him that he hasn't already known. But he wants you as a child of his to be able to express it back to him. Again, you are free. More than anything you can do for him, he wants you. Right? First and foremost, he wants the gift of you. And I know that you're, some of you are probably, maybe more than some, you're freaking out, like, what is the will of God for you? And we keep saying it's love. You're like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, you know what it means? It means you wake up in the morning and you show up. You have class? Go to class. You have a meeting? Go to your meeting. You have work? Go to work. I'm pretty positive you're going to encounter other human beings that whole time, and your call is to love them, right? It doesn't mean you provide everything for them, but it means that you love them in the capacity that you can in the moment and the ways in which you're called. So, all of this, when it comes back to freedom, and look, I'm not going to read these to you again, so you can just pray with them. They're really cool and they're really pretty. Even though we cannot go back, there is a really, really, really beautiful hope for us in and through the gift of our bodies. On the page four at the bottom in bold, it says, the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. You have a great purpose because God made you. I know that for a fact. The will of God for you is love. The will of God for you is your holiness. Okay? If you want proof, this is where I gave you the proof. If it had been that we fell and then God just left us to our own devices, 
you keep reading scripture, what he would have done is he would have let us stay in the garden. He would have stayed in the garden, would have had access to the other tree they talked about in Genesis, the tree that has the fruit of life, right? Because God is so merciful, God kicked us out of the garden. Imagine that. A punishment is actually a mercy. Perhaps as human beings, we don't know everything, right? But he did not want us to have access to the fruit of life because he did not want us to live for forever in this broken state where we were hurting and we were not able to love. So what did he have to do besides kick us out the garden? He gave these punishments in Genesis 3, and we'll talk more about that later. But I want you to see that within the punishments, there was still a promise. In Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, meaning it's the first gospel. It talks about Our Lady. It talks about the woman, right? The woman whose seed, so whose son, whose child. It says that the serpent would go after her and her child. But that her child, through her, so her heel, would crush his head. Which is why, if you see any statue of Our Lady, you see her standing on the head of the serpent. She is crushing the face of evil itself. What was supposed to happen in the beginning is that Adam, who was given charge of the garden, the Hebrew word they use for guard in this particular instance is the same word they use for the priests in the Old Testament guarding the temple. It means like you don't just wave at the snake coming in. Okay? It means with your very life you guard the garden. He wasn't referring just to the creation of the garden. He was referring to the most important garden entrusted to him, which was whom? Eve, his wife, the woman put there, his helpmate, his equal, right? What was supposed to happen is that Adam, through the gift of his body, was supposed to look at the father and cry out to him and say, Father, help me. It wasn't a cute garden snake. The word is actually more akin to a dragon. And he's supposed to like say, in a real sense, like, over my dead body, will you get to Eve? But he didn't say that. What did he say? Exactly. Nothing. He didn't say anything. And so she spoke for the both of them. She took the fruit. It says that he was right there with her. With all of that, this is then why they call Jesus the new Adam, and they call Our Lady the new Eve. Because what happens? Fast forward. This is why grace is real and why this is possible. Because Jesus also was in a garden, and he was being threatened. If you read the gospel, you know, when his apostles are falling asleep, he's in the garden, he's praying to the Father. Does he say nothing? No, he cries out to the Father. If it be your will, let this cup pass through me. But he says, like, if not, I accept. In and through the gift of my body. His very real human body. Fully God, fully man. And Our Lady, like they were talking about on Sunday with the homily, Our Lady, what did she do? Did she run from it in fear? Did she take his job? Did she get up on the cross? She had her own cross, and it looked different. It required that she stand at the foot of his. They both had missions. One was he was offering, she was receiving, and so the church was born. But he literally was saying with his very body, you will get to my bride, the church, over my dead body. In other words, I win, you lose. You're not getting her. She's mine. I have won and bought them 
at a price of my own life. That that good that the Father had first given to Adam and Eve, right? Jesus came, the Son of God came as a human being and allowed that good to be something he could offer back to the Father on the behalf of all of humanity. That's huge, y'all. So, in the 15 minutes we have left. Um, when I was 17 years old, so this is me just getting real with you, um, I heard about Theology of the Body, so this is my senior year of high school, but in that fall, so 12 years ago yesterday, actually, my family had some serious tragedy go on. And as a 17-year-old, I had no idea how the heck to cope with that, okay? None. What the heck was I going to do? Where was I going to run? My friends didn't understand what was happening. My parents were dealing with their own thing, right? That's what happens when trauma happens, when you're overwhelmed. Because of what was happening in my family, and because I had nowhere else to go, I'm not awesome, I just had nowhere else to go. There was an adoration chapel five blocks from my house. And I'd never really experienced adoration until the month before all this happened. So what did I do? I started to run to adoration. I mean, literally, but also figuratively because it was close to my house. And I would sit there for hours. And sometimes I wouldn't say anything. Or sometimes I'd be really angry with the Lord. A few times I definitely left as if he, you know, like, well, you're not saying anything, so I'm leaving. And he's like, that's okay. Because guess what? He was still there. The reason why I bring that up is because I think sometimes we forget the gift of what it means that we have the Eucharist. I'm really serious when I say that. Not just like, oh, we have the Eucharist, oh, we have Mass, so that's really sweet, and like we should receive it as much as we can. I mean, y'all, God gave his very body in sacrifice for each one of us. That meant that at that time, 12 years ago, and at this time now, when you walk into an adoration chapel, you're not just looking at a piece of bread. What we believe is that this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. What we believe is that this is his body, this is himself. That means that you're sitting with a person, a person. He is real. And guess what? He's the only person on the planet that actually knows your thoughts more than you do, which is really helpful considering how long conversations take and we try to explain ourselves. We don't even understand ourselves half the time, right? He understands every single piece of you. So when I encountered theology of the body a few months later after all this had happened, I was struck in the face with like, oh my gosh, no matter what I've experienced in my family, there is a God who is real, a man who walked this earth, who offered for me, even if it was just me, his very body, his everything, his whole life. And whatever I hope for in the future, it's still possible because his grace is real, because he's given to me his very self. What has he held back from me? Nothing. Right? Nothing. Whatever traumas you've experienced, whatever darkness you've experienced, what I'm trying to tell you is that this is what the sacraments do, but especially the Eucharist, is that it makes real for you the person of Christ. I don't know where you are in your faith journey, but I do want to offer you a challenge to run to adoration, to run to the sacraments. If you want your life to be different, if you want to have more hope, if you want to believe that you are loved, realize again he's never going to force himself on your freedom. He's waiting for you to come to him. But that desire that you have for love, he put it there. It's like this distant echo where he's calling you. He's like, come to me. Come to me. 
come to me, right? And the reason why I'm also sharing this is I had this beautiful experience on a retreat I went on like two or three months ago. I was praying, and um, the Lord led me to that passage with the hemorrhaging woman and Jairus' daughter. So this woman was hemorrhaging for 12 years, and Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, and she had passed away. And so they were trying to get Jesus to come, and they said she was sleeping, and he's like, don't worry, she's sleeping. They're like, no, she died, and he raises her from the dead. I say all this to share, like, y'all, this is my story, but I'm trying to have you understand that you each have your own story, and the Lord wants to speak to you in a way that's unique to you. But on this retreat, he kept bringing up these women, and he kept bringing up 12 years. And he was saying, like, he literally told me in the way that Jesus speaks to us, that he wanted to redeem even my life's experience of this day that my family went through all this trauma, which was yesterday for me, 12 years to the day, okay? And 12 years to the day for me, when the Lord is promising me new life, do you know what I got to go and do? Because who could plan this? Jesus. I got to go to the hospital to see Jordan and Michael Lane and to hold their baby boy. And they've asked me to be the godmother. And it's my first godchild. And I'm literally holding this baby who's wonderfully tired because he just, you know, exited the womb. So he's just sleeping. This baby perfect peace, and I'm literally, I'm like, this is what new life looks like. In my mind, because I have a crazy memory, I'm like, at this time, 12 years ago, I know everything that was happening, and look at what the Father can do, y'all, what he can restore, literally, new life, even into the darkest of places. I'm bringing this up because right now, as a church, we are going through difficult things. We are going through hard realities. And even if we weren't, your lives are already complicated enough, and I feel like you know that they're hard, okay? I get it. You have a gift of freedom. You get to choose what you do with the gift of who you are. And I really am begging you and challenging you. The crisis of the priesthood would only be a thing if there was a crisis already in marriage and family. There's not one over the other. It's all there. It's a crisis of love, right? It's a crisis of we have this gift of freedom. What are we going to do with it? And what I want to challenge you with is in your prayer, if you've never considered it, if you look at this image of Jesus to my left, so you're right, this is the image of divine mercy. Again, he didn't show up as glorified Jesus. It's like, hey, look, I resurrected. Everything's great. He showed up with his wounds. These rays show the blood and water that gush forth from his side. When people deliver babies, there's blood and water that comes forth. New life, the sign of new life in this way, is blood and water. In and through the gift of his body, his flesh. Y'all, this is the theology of the body. It is that our body has a greater purpose than just to, like, take up space. It is the way in which we communicate with the rest of the world. And that that communion is something that's deeper than, like, I can touch you. There's a communion that happens that's deeper than what we see. It's a communion of the interior. So too and always the invitation is with the Lord. St. Faustina says that what Jesus told her, and I think this is very important for each of you, this is what got me through the last 12 years. This is why I can stand up to you and actually like, like my job and love what I'm doing and study things I like and Have a life that's full of promise and hope because you each have your stories. That's mine, but you have stuff that's happened to you, right? Theology of the body changed my life because it showed me that there is a purpose for everything. Because it showed me that God's body is the one that leads me 
through the cross. He told St. Faustina, if you don't believe my words, at least believe my wounds. If you don't believe my words, at least believe my wounds. And I challenged you because when I was your age and when I was in high school, I would go to all these retreats and they were great. But I would get really frustrated because I'd be like, man, all they talk about is how like flowery everything is. And, like everything's going to be awesome. And like, you know, I'm going to, this is my desire to marry dream guy. Well, then he's going to show up at this age and we'll get married. And it'll be great. Y'all, that is not how this works. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't have your dreams and desires. Have those. I'm saying to balance them with something that's deeper, with the one who never leaves, with the man who already gave himself for you in and through the gift of his body, right? What I'm saying is, is that I would be lying to you if I told you that the gospel message, which theology body is just the gospel, I would be lying to you if I told you that now that you maybe have a little glimmer of it or if you keep learning it, that everything in your life is going to be easy and it's going to be perfect, There are many beautiful marriages of people that have studied theology of the body. I say beautiful because they're real. I didn't say perfect and I didn't say easy. Right? We still, every single day, wherever we are, have the gift and the choice to choose with our will to love. And like I said, I'd be lying to you if I said that it was easy. I would be lying to you if I told you, like, oh, everything's going to be perfect. Anything that tells you to run from the cross is not the voice of God. I'm not used to giving a talk like this. I would much prefer to be in flowers and rainbows, but I'd be lying to you. It wouldn't be loving. And so this is what I'm trying to tell you. Everything I've mentioned before about fear, about the enemy wants to tempt you, and wants you to doubt his, the Father's love for you and the goodness that he's created you with, everything related to that, it comes back to this. If Jesus ever comes to you and he doesn't have the wounds, right, if someone is trying to preach you a gospel without the cross, they are a liar. It is not all about the cross. We get to the resurrection. But what I'm trying to tell you is to get to the resurrection, we have to be unafraid to push through the cross. Does this make a little bit of sense? Do not be afraid of suffering. Do not be afraid of sacrifice. There can be no love without sacrifice. So if you are in a place in your life where you feel called to a certain vocation, do something about it. Do not let fear paralyze you. Faith is you stepping into something. It's not waiting for Jesus to call you on the phone and to tell you to do X, Y, Z. It usually doesn't work like that. He's telling you, open your eyes. Ask him to give you the eyes to see. And then you step into it. Do not be afraid what love demands of you. That's what I really want to beg of all of you. Because I've had so many conversations and they're wonderful with men and women. But the reality is, is like we all want to find the easy way out of love. Every single one of us. There are things and people and situations I would really like to run away from right now because it would be easier. I would really enjoy that. That is not my vocation, right? Our vocation is to stand tall at the foot of the cross. Our vocation is to respond to that. And when I was talking to a young man over the summer, he's a year or two out of college, and he was looking at me, and I praise God for his honesty. This is great. He was like, I know, but, like, it's so hard, like, I just want to go talk to all these girls and, you know, like, get to know them. I'm like, you can do that. Go for it. I was like, all I'm trying to tell you is that when you're ready, you will have to choose one. One. 
You will have to say, and I'm serious about it. I know people are laughing, but think about this. You will have to choose one. You will have to say no to the many for the sake of the one. And this paralysis that our generation is experiencing, it's, mm, it's making me so mad. I'm like, get over it. Move past the, like, all these ideas we have about unreal things and unreal people. Be present to the real flesh and blood people in front of you. That is the will of God for you. We don't have to complicate it so much. And do not let the fear paralyze you from moving forward. And guess what? It's supposed to be awkward. Whatever. Welcome to the human family. Post-fall, we're all awkward. Okay? We just are. And human love is messy. But y'all, this paralysis of fear, if you want to know your call right now in the church, sorry, I really just want to scream a lot of things, but I'm not going to do that. If you want to know your call right now in the church, if you were called to marriage, I want you to realize that is a good, beautiful, holy calling. If you're called to priesthood, good, beautiful, holy calling. Religious life, good, holy, beautiful calling. Show up to it. Be present to your life right now so the Lord can prepare you for that yes when you were called to it. Do not run from it. And if you think that when you take vows, it's suddenly going to be perfect, and if you're a married man, you're just not going to be attracted to any women, or if you're a married woman, you'll be attracted to any other men, I'm telling you that's not real. You are still human. You are learning right now what does it mean to be faithful. You want to know how you're faithful? You know who you are. You pray for that purity of vision, and you acquire that freedom in your own heart. That when you choose, you choose with your entire self. You choose out of your freedom. I really hope this is making sense. The point of all of this is I really wanted to show you. is This is Our Lady of Chesahova. I can't give you the whole story. She's beautiful and Polish and great. She has two scars here on her face that they can't get out. This is divine mercy, right? The wounds of Christ are on here. There is a reason why they can't get these wounds out of her face. There's a reason why he showed up with his wounds. I'm trying to show you guys, this is what love looks like. I'm all about the romance. I love Hallmark movies. And go ahead, write me a song. It'd be great. But what does love really look like? I asked them if I could talk about this, so I am. What love really looks like is my friend Michael yesterday changing a diaper for the first time in his life, and he was ready to get sick. But he did it. What it looked like was his wife who just delivered a human being out of her body, being in pain, and not complaining about it. Because she had a baby who was a fruit of love. Right? What it looks like most of the time is not my emotions and my feeling when everything is hunky-dory and just... It's great. What it looks like, and this is what John Paul II is saying, is that I have the gift of freedom for something, not the gift of freedom from something. Do you understand the difference? It's not freedom from responsibility, from commitment, from consistency, from the one. It's freedom for the one and consistency and stability and commitment. Every single one of you in this room, your dignity deserves that. And I'm begging you, A, not to settle for less, but B, to start cultivating your vocation now by learning how to say yes to that which is best and realizing that sometimes you'll have to say no to even very good things. Because Adam and Eve were standing in front of a gift and God was asking them out of obedience and love to say no to something that was good because he had what was best for them. And because they couldn't do it themselves and they fell, he came and he showed them how. Through his very body, through her very body. My closing quote for you is from another work that John Paul II wrote. And if you want to see what he looks like when he's not 
being awesome. He's also being awesome in a different way. Like, he's a man who was acquainted with suffering. He had Parkinson's disease at the end of his life. When he would lift up Jesus in the consecration, he was shaking. But he did it anyway. He was sanctifying the world through the gift of his body, even in illness. This is the man that's inviting all of you to realize that you were created from love, for love, to love. That you were created not to be paralyzed. That you were created for freedom to love. That you were created not for the dominion of someone who doesn't want what's best for you, but for the dominion of a father who has created you for eternity. And John Paul II said in another work, he said, do not be afraid if love sometimes follows tortuous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. Again, do not be afraid if love sometimes follows tortuous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. This is just talk one of five. There's a lot more we can talk about. But we had to talk about the beginning. Pray with that. Read Genesis 1 and 2. See what it was like. Pray with these quotes. I'm inviting you to do that. To understand the love that you've come from that God intends for you. And we'll talk more about how it's reality now post-fall. What does that look like? But y'all, this is so important. And I really want to share it with you. So, pray with this. Now I'm praying for you. If you take anything away from this talk, Run to the sacraments. Run to this. That's him in the Eucharist. And do not run. Do not run from him, meaning do not run from love, meaning do not run from the sacrifice and the demands that love makes on you. You will become the man you want to be. You will become the woman you want to be because you stand tall in the face of difficulty and you choose to love anyway. All those things that we have, these little pipe dreams of unreality sometimes where we're convinced maybe there's something else. Maybe there's someone else. Maybe there's this other thing. Father talked about it today in his homily, and we miss that on the present moment in front of us. It's by going through this that you actually have more fulfillment of those dreams than you could ever realize. But you won't know that unless you say no to the distractions and the things we kind of make up in our heads and the fear, and you choose love. Always choose love. Okay, let's pray. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you wanted to speak to our hearts. Lord, I just ask that you would seal uh, whatever graces you have shared, Lord, that you would just water the seeds and bring them to life. We ask, Lord, by the graces of your pierced and suffering body, the gift of your Eucharist, Lord, that you would just work miracles in our lives, that you would teach us, Lord, how to remain, fa- Lord, how to remain faithful, and that you would teach us, whether we're up on the cross or sitting at the foot of it, Lord, to remain. Lord, that you would teach us not to run from suffering, but that you would be beckoning us with your gaze of love to remain where we are and to stand with you, for you, through you. And Mother Mary, I just consecrate all this to your heart and to your prayers all of those here, all of the struggles and the joys and the dreams. As we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.